0: Well, good morning, once again. If you're new with us, we welcome you, and we want to just say that week before I went on vacation, we started a new study here at Calvary on Sunday mornings, the Gospel of John. And at that time, we kind of did an introduction to John the man, and this morning we want to kind of do an introduction to John's Gospel because it will help us to understand. Uh, what we will learn in this book. You know, the English word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news, good news. It's also a word we get the word evangel and evangelize from. In secular Greek, the word was often used of good news about an important event like the birth of the emperor's new son, we'll say. And of course, heralds went out to the entire kingdom, to announce that the Emperor had a new son, everyone began to rejoice, it was good news. The Gospels are four of them, four Gospels, and they are good news about the most significant events in all of human history, the life, the sacrificial death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question arises though, why are there four Gospels, why four four Gospels? Well, the best explanation as to why there are four Gospels is because the Holy Spirit wanted to reach four different groups of people, emphasizing a different theme of Jesus' life and ministry. You see, Matthew was a Jew, and he was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, presenting Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's long-awaited Messiah and King. Now, for the Jewish people to receive Jesus as the Messiah... Matthew first needs to show that he fulfilled the Messianic prophecies given in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. To do this, he quotes 16 Messianic prophecies throughout his gospel after Jesus did or said certain things. And uh, he would then quote these Messianic prophecies, identifying each of them with Jesus with the words, All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, connecting Christ To the prophecies about messiah because obviously no jewish person would receive a messiah who didn't fulfill all the prophecies god had spoken of many centuries earlier in his word also since matthew is presenting jesus as the jewish messiah he needs to show how he descended from abraham was the father of the jewish nation and so matthew includes a genealogy that traces jesus jesus lineage back to abraham Well, Mark was writing to the Romans who were notoriously impatient people. Uh, That's why Mark's gospel is concise and action-packed. Mark's fast-paced approach would especially appeal to a Roman audience. And that's why, you know, he includes a lot of miracles but not many parables, okay? And the word immediately appears... More in Mark's gospel than any other gospel, because he wants to keep things fast-paced. And immediately after that, Jesus went here. Or immediately after that, Jesus said this. He wants to keep things moving. Mark's is the only gospel, or let me say this. The theme of Mark's gospel is to present Jesus as the quintessential servant of man who came to the earth to die, to suffer and die for sinners. Mark's gospel is the only gospel that doesn't include a genealogy, because who cares about the genealogy of a servant, right? I mean, the Romans sure wouldn't have. Luke wrote his gospel to the Greeks, emphasizing the humanity of Jesus, that he is the Son of Man, a title that Luke uses 26 times in his gospel. Luke, more than any other gospel writer, gives us a glimpse into the humanness of Christ, And because Luke is emphasizing Jesus' humanity, he takes his genealogy back, not just to Abraham, but all the way back to the first man, Adam. Well, that brings us to John's gospel. And John, he wrote his gospel after all the others. His was written between 85 and 95 AD. And among other things, John is primarily emphasizing the deity of Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, or more precisely, God the Son second person of the Trinity. And since John is emphasizing the deity of Christ, he includes a genealogy of sorts, if I can put it that way. He takes us back, not to Abraham or Adam, but back before time began to emphasize the pre-existence of Christ to the physical universe. You see, only God existed before anything else existed, angels, matter, or time itself. Only God existed before anything else existed because only God is eternal who can trace his existence back to eternity past. Now, it is true that John wrote his gospel in a large degree to strengthen believers, to strengthen the faith of believers, but also to appeal to unbelievers to come to faith in Christ. And I think John's is the only gospel that get, well, maybe not the only one, but John, more than the others, let's put it that way. Uh, gives us the theme for why he wrote his gospel. comes right out of his own mouth, okay? You don't have to turn there, but in John 20, verses 30 to 31, John writes these words. He says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, the word is miracles, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe, listen, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name john is very much concerned about presenting eternal life to his readers because he knows there's nothing more important than life eternal this life that we put so much emphasis on is is over before we realize it it's nothing it's not even a, a blink of an eye compared to eternity and so john is deeply concerned that his 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 readers understand the life That is in Christ. Now let me say this before, we'll come back to that, but let me just say this. Many call John a mystic. Uh, He's a a spiritual guy, okay? And uh, John's gospel is highly organized, Um, but not the way you might think. He built it around seven miracles that led to seven discourses that culminated in seven I am statements. The phrase I am is the name of God as first, uh, as first appears or expressed in the book of Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, when God spoke to Moses and said, Go to my people and tell them that I am going to set them free. Moses said, Well, Lord, who should I say is sending me? I don't even know your name. He said, You tell them I am is sending you. So for the first time in Scripture, God revealed himself as the great I am not the great I was or the great I will be. Inherent in his name is the idea of God being eternal. Now, we'll talk about that more next time. But let me just say this. God dwells in the eternal present tense. There is no uh, past for God or future for God. All time is happening right now in the eyes of God as if it were happening in the present. Uh, Somebody put it this way. God looks at all of human creation, all of history uh, as we would see a a parade from a helicopter. If you get high enough above the ground, you can see the beginning, the middle, and the end of the parade all happening uh, below you at once. God sees all of human history that way from the creation to the culmination. He sees it all as if it's going on right now. God is outside of time. Therefore, he sees everything in time as happening before him in the eternal present tense. He's the great I am. Now, guys, this sacred name of God is known as the Tetragrammaton, which means four letters, four letters, Y-H-W-H. No one knows for sure the uh, true pronunciation of Y-H-W-H. because The ancient Hebrew had no vowels. Right. They didn't really have any vowels. It's all consonants. And um, on top of that, the Jewish people never would pronounce the name of God because they believed it was so holy. Their, their lips were too profane to utter the sacred name of God. So whenever they were reading the scriptures, you know, in their synagogues or even in the temple years before that, uh, when the reader came to the, the letters YHWH, he just stopped and bowed his head, and everybody bowed their heads, and he just said, the name. He said those words, the name. He didn't pronounce the name because, again, they believed their lips were too profane to utter the holy name of God. Well, you can imagine after a few centuries, they forgot how to pronounce it. Nobody actually knew the vowels. and Nobody would say the name, so they kind of forgot how to pronounce it. But I think... Why, you know Y-H-W-H, I think Yahweh is probably correct, although most of us usually pronounce it Jehovah. But here's something most of you know, maybe some of you didn't. The word Yahweh or Jehovah, YHWH, is actually a verb in the Hebrew. It means to be or to become. The idea being that God wanted his name to communicate something, that he wanted to be or to become to us whatever we needed whatever we needed, which is why the word Jehovah is often coupled with a noun in the Old Testament. So we read in the Old Testament uh, things like Jehovah Shalom, I am peace, or Jehovah Jireh, I am provision, or Jehovah Nissi, I am victory, or Jehovah Rohi, I am shepherd. But the greatest of all, the greatest of all, is Jehovah Shua, I am salvation. I am salvation. In fact, the Greek name for Jesus comes from Jehovah Shua, or as the Jews pronounce it, Yehoshua, or they would shorten it to Yeshua. The name of Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means God is our salvation. You see, God wants to become to us whatever we need. Well, our greatest need was for salvation. So God came down from heaven, became a man, and died in our place in the person of Jesus Christ, our Yeshua, whose name means the Lord has become our salvation. Now, in John's gospel, Jesus called himself, I am, again, the name of God, different times, The seven that stand out, which the book is kind of built around, are seven I am statements. These I am statements, I am, the name of God, is coupled with different nouns throughout the gospel. Think of it as, and again, I am is the name of God, and what comes after it is really a description of who He is or what He wants to do, how He wants to become to us whatever we need, right? Well, in John's gospel. Uh, he couples the name I am with different nouns, which is the name of God coupled with a description. Think of it like this. If I was using it of myself, I would say, uh, Phil Ballmeyer, my name, hyphen the pastor. That would be my name coupled with a description of who I am. When we read our Bibles, we tend not to read these things. Well, You know, we tend not to take our time often. We read, but we tend to race through a lot of things. We don't meditate on what really is being said, the impact. Let me read to you these seven I am statements the way they're supposed to be read. A name coupled by a description, coupled with a description, all right? I am, hyphen, the bread of life. John 6:35. I am the light of the world. John 8, 12. I am the door, John 10, 9. I am the good shepherd, John 10, verse 11. I am the name of God, the resurrection, and the life, John 11, 25. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, verse 6. And finally, I am the vine. John 15, verse 5. And we'll look at and develop each of these I Am statements when we get to them, because, guys, they are not only important, they could be life-changing. If you fully understand what Jesus Christ wants to be to you, everything you need are wrapped up in these I Am statements. Everything. Now, of course... There were times when Jesus called himself, I am, that he got himself in trouble with the Jewish leadership. One of those comes to mind, uh, that comes to mind is John chapter 8. And he's kind of gotten into it. You know, Jesus had nothing but compassion and kindness for sinners. The folks he really didn't have much use for were the religious establishment who walked around communicating to everybody how holy they were. None of you people are worthy to come to God, only us. God only loves us Pharisees and scribes because we're so holy, you know. And the idea was that, you know, uh, Jesus really got into conflicts with these guys. In John 8, it really erupts. It really boils over. And they basically called him a bastard child because word on the street was he was virgin born, right? Mary must have had an affair with some young guy, you know, that kind of thing. And he told them, well, you know, you're of your father, the devil. You know, uh, it got a little heated there. And um, at one point, Jesus said to them, you know, Abraham rejoiced, looked forward to seeing my day, and he rejoiced when he saw it. And they they flipped out. What do you mean Abraham saw your day? You're not even 50 years old. Abraham has been dead and buried long, long ago. How can you say that Abraham rejoiced to see your day? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't even couple with anything. Went very clear. Before Abraham was, I am. They flipped out. They picked up stones to kill him because in their minds he was blaspheming, calling himself God. Surprise. <laughs> now, guys, as we look at the four Gospels, we can see right away pretty much that three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are similar, and because of that, they are known as the Synoptic Gospels, from a Greek word meaning to see together or to share a common point of view. The Synoptic Gospels focus primarily on Jesus' Galilean ministry and his public teachings, whereas John's Gospel focuses mainly on Jesus' Judean ministry and his private teachings to his disciples almost one half of john's entire gospel deals with the last week of jesus life before his crucifixion and half of that focuses on the last 12 hours of his life before the cross this gives us incredible detail into the final hours of jesus life unlike any of the other gospels it gives us a detailed look at his final hours on earth including and especially the time he spent with his closest men We get insights into Jesus' relationship with his guys. He gave some of the greatest discourses in the Gospels. The last few hours of his life before the cross, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record that. John takes us behind the veil, in a sense, and he gives us insight into these things, these discourses, these these teachings right before he went to the cross are incredible. And they teach us so much about Jesus, about the Spirit, about the love of God for us, and so on. Now, as I've already said, a major theme of John's gospel is that unbelievers would come to know and believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world, and that by believing, many would have life, eternal life in his name. And as I alluded to earlier, this was such a burden for John that people would have eternal life that 54 times in his gospel he talks about this life in fact he makes sure that he quotes everything well i don't know if it's everything but a lot of what jesus said about eternal life okay and um two that come to mind john 10 verse 10 where jesus said i've i came that you might have life eternal life and have it more abundantly John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Look, since there is only life, eternal life in Jesus Christ, something that the other New Testament writers echo, not the least of which was Peter, in, uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when he said to the Sanhedrin, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among, under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. But since there is only eternal life in Jesus Christ, it stands to reason that Satan would try to trick people into accepting, listen, a counterfeit or a false Christ who, although believed in, cannot save them. You know, I won't have you turn there, but in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4, Paul, well, actually he rebukes the church in Corinth. Basically, what happened after he came into Corinth, gave them the truth, and moved on to preach the gospel somewhere else, false teachers came in. This was quite common in Paul's ministry. He would preach the truth, people would get saved, a church would be started, eventually he'd have to move on, and the devil would invariably bring into the church false teachers, and they had come into the church in Corinth, it was not a very discerning church, what a carnality. And they were embracing these false teachers who were teaching, who were presenting a different Jesus from the one Paul presented to them and another gospel. Not the gospel that saves, but a mixture of works plus faith, law plus grace. And Paul writes them and he really takes them to task. He says, don't you guys understand that just as God gave the truth to Adam, and I'm paraphrasing, just as God gave the truth to to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Not long after that, Satan took the form of a serpent, came into the garden, and beguiled Eve, gave her lies that she embraced. Don't you understand Satan's MO? I mean, don't you get it? That once the truth has come into an area, it dispels darkness. Satan doesn't want a truth in, in a person's heart. He wants to drive it out. So he comes right, gets his, his, uh, his false ministers to come in, and begin to mess things up, begin to muddy the waters with with doctrines that are not biblical about who Jesus is and the true gospel. And, And that's what's happened to you guys. And Paul really took them to task over it. This is a common tactic of the devil that we must always be on guard against. We have the true Christ. Satan will try to bring in false Christ. You know, when I was, I don't know, about eight or nine years old, There was a game show on TV uh, that was called To Tell the Truth. To Tell the Truth. Some of you who are old, (laughs) older, older, uh, might have remembered that show. Uh, I did a little research to refresh my memory and learned the show ran from 1956 to 1968. The show was brought back in some form in 2016. It might be still on the air. I don't know. But uh, I remember the original. I haven't seen the, the, the new one. And let me pull a description of the show, give it to you. I pulled it off the internet, okay? And I'll show you where I'm going with this, but, but bear with me. Uh, it says, the show was built around a central character who had some special ability or was known a, for a certain field of work. That unidentified person was joined by two others on stage, standing side by side, all claiming to be the central character. The show began with the announcer asking each of the contestants to, name their, to state their name, each one responding, my name is, and then giving the name of the central character. So <clears throat> if the central character's name was John Smith, the first can tell, you know, who is, what's your name? My name is John Smith. Second person, what is your name? My name is John Smith. Third person, my name is John Smith. Okay. Then it says the celebrity panelists then read along as the host read aloud a signed affidavit about the central character, you know, about his or her profession, or giftedness so the central character then had written out an affidavit okay about you know who they were what they did why they were you know what what was their field of expertise that brought them onto the show and of course the host would read it to the panelists the celebrity panelists okay and um, then the panelists were each given a period of time to uh, question all three individuals to try to determine who was the real central character The only rule was that the central character had sworn to give only truthful answers, while the two other imposters were permitted to lie and pretend to be the central character. After the time limit ended, the questions stopped, and each member of the panel voted on which of the challengers they believed to be the central character. Once the votes were cast, the host asked, "Will the real you know person, the central will the real John Smith, will say, please stand up?" The central character then stood after uh, often uh, some brief, playful false starts by the other contestants. you remember how that went? Okay, you know, with the real John Smith please stand up, and then one starts to, st- to stand up and then sits down, another one moves, you think they're going to stand finally the real guy stands up, right? It says the two imposters then would reveal their real names and their actual occupations. Prize money was awarded and divided among all three of the challengers based on the number of wrong votes the imposters received, or in other words, um, according to how well they had deceived the celebrity panelists. Why do I bring all this up? Well, to say this, and I don't know, I just thought of it. (laughs) You know, I don't know, maybe it's not going to make a big point in your mind, I don't know. Uh, Why do I bring it all up? Because Satan has imposed a kind of to tell the truth show on this world. However, guys, it is anything but a game. You see, Satan is placed next to Jesus' imposters that claim to be the real Messiah and Savior of mankind. But they are false Christs, false messiahs who can't save. And the prize, quote unquote, for choosing the wrong Jesus in life is eternal death since only the true Jesus can impart eternal life. Of course, John knew that, that, the, that only the true Christ, only the true Jesus Christ could save us from our sins and give us eternal life and because of it, he spends the first listen, he spends the first 18 verses of his gospel introducing us to the true Jesus. Scholars call this 18-verse introduction the prologue, the prologue. This prologue contains many of the major themes of John's gospel, which are later reintroduced and developed more fully. But for the most part, these first 18 verses form a statement of faith concerning Jesus Christ. Now, a statement of faith is a declaration of what a church or parachurch organization or missions organization believes about god jesus you know salvation and other key elements of the christian faith Uh, every evangelical church let me just say this every evangelical church and ministry agrees on the basics who jesus is and how we get saved now we can differ on some non-essentials and this is very common okay you have evangelical churches that will often differ on non-essentials like The timing of the rapture or are the gifts of the spirit still around today these are non-essential doctrines they don't impact a person's eternity okay when it comes to the basics all evangelical churches and organizations believe the same things about jesus who he is what he did and how you get to heaven they all believe that if you go to our church website click on the visit tab And then on, we believe, it will take you to our church statement of faith. But then then you will find other churches and groups that claim to be Christian, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Christian scientists, and so on. And if you go to their websites and read who they believe Jesus is and how a person gets saved, you're going to see how much of a difference their concept of Christ differs from our concept of who jesus is as evangelicals okay and we'll talk about that more next time suffice it to say right now that false christs have been around pretty much since the fall of man i'm thinking of nimrod in genesis 10 you can check him out on your own first cult leader i don't know if he presented himself as a messiah i kind of think he did all right but these false Christs have been around pretty much since the fall of man Jesus said they're coming in greater numbers the closer we get to his return and they would deceive many this was something that was certainly true in John's day because even in the apostle John's day there had already come numerous people claiming to be the Christ of God and these false Christs had led listen many astray many astray therefore John opens his gospel by giving us seven attributes or distinguishing signs of the true Christ, so that no one would be able to mistake an imposter for the genuine Christ of God. Let me just read them to you, okay? Um, These come right out of the first 18 verses. And guys, they form what theologians call a Christology of Jesus Christ. Christology is the study of Jesus Christ, who He is, what He did, and so on, all right? John is giving us a concise Christology of Jesus Christ in the first 18 verses of his gospel because he knows there is only eternal life in the true Christ. Satan has flooded the zone, flooded the world with false Christ. If I'm going to present, you know, if I'm going to um, appeal to people to to, to have eternal life, i got to present, I know who the true Christ is, John would say, but but I need to present the true Christ to people so that they're not confused. And that's why he began his gospel with an 18-verse statement of faith or prologue. And it breaks down into seven main points. I'll give them to you quickly. The eternal preexistence of Jesus Christ, the beginning of verse 1 and verse 2. The equality of Christ with God, middle of verse 1. The sameness of Christ with God, end of verse 1. The omnipotence of Christ, verse 3. The life of Christ, verses 4 and 5. The herald of Christ, verses 6 to 8. The light of Christ, verse 9. And the incarnation of Christ, verses 14 to 18. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, why do I need to know all this theology? Okay, I'm not going to be or planning on being a professor at a Bible college or a seminary. So why you know, why are you going to go through all this? All right, why, why do I have to know all this theology? Okay, well, all right. Let me ask you this. What if somebody came to you and don't think it can't happen? It's happened. What if somebody came to you and said, look, I hear you're a Christian. You know, I, I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. When I die, can you help me? What would you tell them? Well, it's easy. i tell them, believe in Jesus. Okay, well, that's great. But which Jesus are you talking about? Remember 2 Corinthians 11? Many have come with different Jesuses, different Gospels. All right. So which Jesus are you talking about? Are you talking about the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses who teach that Jesus is really a created being, Michael the Archangel? Or maybe you're referring to the Jesus of the Mormon Church who claims that he is the brother of Lucifer. Or maybe you're referring to the Jesus of the New Age movement who uh, believe he's the latest reincarnation of the Christ Spirit. And they're waiting for the latest reincarnation, Maitreya Buddha. Jesus was the incarnation of the Christ Spirit for the last age, the Piscean age, the one we're actually in currently, they say, coming a new age, okay, the age of Aquarius. And there's going to be a new Christ for that age. And they believe that Maitreya Buddha will soon, they believe he's alive actually on the earth, and will soon be revealed where he will then lead this, planted into a new age the age of aquarius okay we're singing about that in the 60s right this is the dawning of the age of aquarius (laughs) a little enthusiastic but it wasn't quite that all right coming they believe all right but but again guys look john knew john knew who jesus was john knew that you know the only only the true jesus could save us from our sins and give us eternal life and that's why again he spends the first 18 verses of his gospel introducing us to the one and only true Jesus Christ. Now, before we actually get into John's statement of faith concerning the true Christ, I just want to end this morning by focusing on the title he chose to call him by, which is the Word. Look, we're not going to get very far this morning. In fact, um, if I didn't get into the gospel a little bit, you'd come up here and beat me to death because I, I t- you know, so I, I will get into the first six words, okay? Um, <laughs> you can't go home and say, I didn't start the gospel of John. <laughs> Let me just say this, okay? Let me digress for just a second. Um, a lot of people, again, think, well, you know, why do I need to come to church and, and learn all this doctrine, this theology, Okay? Let's be honest, most people come to church today in America to be uplifted, to maybe moved emotionally, leave kind of feeling high emotionally, you know, spring in their step. And honestly, I'm not trying to take the spring out of your step, okay? I'm not trying to depress anybody. My goal is not to make you happy, it's to make you holy. My goal is not that I give you things that make you walk out of here, you know, just uh, really at an emotional high. I want to tell you things that you need to hear, all right? We live in a culture where, and, and, and I blame pastors primarily, because pastors want to fill their church with a lot of people. They know that a lot of people don't want to get into doctrine. They don't want to get into some of the deeper things, or theology that's out. Uh, so what they want to do is they want to tailor the services around felt needs, they want people to come in and they want to evoke emotion, you know, until so they got the emotional testimonies and, and people are crying, you know, and, and 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 that's what they're after. I mean, and because people if they feel good and they are moved emotionally, they'll, they'll come back, right? I don't need all this theology. And so theology is basically now relegated to the realm of professors and seminaries who are sometimes not the most connected people to the average Christian, right? God love them. I mean, they're very brilliant, many of them, but, you know, they're out there in their seminaries or whatever it might be in their ivory towers. They don't have a lot of contact with average Christians, okay? And they're out there, you know, kind of throwing down their little platitudes and they're getting into this very deep theological stuff. Some of it we don't really need. Some of it just to, you know, just to show us how smart they are, all right? But the idea is that There was a time in the church's history, guys, when pastors were the theologians. Jonathan Edwards and many others were pastors, but they were theologians. And they studied very much God's word and presented it to people because they wanted people to know the deeper things of God. The worst thing in the world is to have a stupid Christian. The worst thing in the world is to have a Christian who comes to church, is made to feel good about themselves, walks out there, and if somebody says, well, why are you a Christian? Duh, I, I don't really know. Well, who's Jesus? Well, he's the son of God. I mean, but they don't have, they can't give scriptures, they can't lead them in the, in the Bible to, to you know, why they believe certain things about Christ. Look, it's my goal when you come here, okay? Okay. If if you come here and you're looking for, you know, a happy meal, a drive through sermon, you know, a sermonette for a Christianette, you're in the wrong place, okay? And I think the regulars know that. and they'll, yeah, yeah, you're in the wrong place. They'll tell you that. Okay? But honestly, let me just say this, and you can pray for me because I'm serious. As I wade through... Um, Commentaries and other Greek um, lexicons and 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 other things like that. There is so much information that you know, and some of it, I'll be honest with you, I'm not even interested in. It gets nothing. I'm not interested in doctrine, but some of these guys get into things, and it's just so deep as far as different controversies and this and that. And it's like you know what? That there's nothing there relevant for today at all so i pray lord give me a a balance so that i don't just present you know some real basic problem but i don't want to get so deep that it's going over people's heads and nobody's got anything they can take with them to help them walk with you this week give me a, a grace that we can strike a balance that we can have studies that while they're not super uh you know theological intellectual but they're not so watered down and simple that people don't grow. Look, if I keep the teaching down here at the elementary level, you'll, you'll all grasp it, but you won't grow. If I elevate it a little bit, make you think, which is not always pleasant. I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying sometimes we don't want to think. We come to church, we just want to. I just want to veg. Just make me feel good. If we can challenge you, we can force you to think a little bit. It may not be the most pleasant thing always, because who wants to exercise any part of your body, your brain included, but it will help you grow. So that when you go out into the world and somebody says, Why are you a Christian? Who is Jesus Christ? I'm glad you asked me that. Here, come on over here. Let me open my Bible and I'll start over here in John's Gospel chapter one, and I will show you what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he came to do, and in and, and the light that only he can give. Guys, listen. Years ago, I read a book. I've never, it was a, uh, just a short book, but I thought the author uh, gave some profound insights. He said there's two models of the church today. One is the church as a field. The other is the church as a force. Whatever model you embrace as a church, as a pastor, will greatly affect affect and impact your philosophy of ministry. Quickly, what are they? The church as a field believes that this is where evangelism takes place. Everything is geared to bring people into this room, or if you're it's usually a mega church, into the sanctuary. Because that's where all the ministry takes place pretty much. All the evangelism. You guys, you're not really qualified. you got to leave it up to us, the, the professionals. That's what we get paid for, Okay. Everything is designed through the music and the glitzy presentations and the Hollywood like uh, everything else. It's all designed to appeal to unbelievers to come in because this is the field, all right? This is where ministry evangelism takes place. The problem is if you make that the focus and every message on Sunday morning is geared to the lost that they might get saved, how do the, church, how do the saints grow? The gospel is a wonderful thing. Once you receive it, you don't need to keep hearing it. Week after week as the main diet. You're not going to grow. The other model, which I believe is the correct one, the biblical one, is the church as a force. What does that mean? It means that the Lord Jesus Christ ordained that pastors, elders, teachers are to teach the saints the word of God. That's why you come to church. That we might teach you using my gift, which is a teacher, I'm studying. I'm not saying I'm the only one that can study and understand God's word, but that is my responsibility. And so I study God's word, I pray, and I ask God to craft these messages, to put them together in a way that people can understand what's going on. And we equip the saints, Ephesians 4, as we equip you with the word of God, we send you out. You're a force that goes into the world, which is the field, to share the gospel with the lost. And then when they get saved, you bring them in here and now we start teaching them. This is the biblical model. It's something that is lacking in the church today. Pretty much all the megachurches, not all, but many of them, have adopted the church as a field model where everything takes place in the church building in the way of evangelism, pretty much. At least that's what the seeker-sensitive services are all about. And I just feel that it leaves Christians weak. I, I think it just it doesn't really promote growth and that's why a lot of folks from those churches have come to churches like this. They're, hungry, they're starving to be fed from God's word. So we're going to start John's gospel. I'm just going to give you six words. I've said all of that to kind of condition you not to rush me. Don't, don't rush me. Get comfortable. We're going to be in John for a while. All right? All right, I'll give you the first six words, all right? And then we'll end, okay? John opens up his gospel with these six words. In the beginning was the what? The Word. In the beginning was the Word, a title for Jesus Christ. How do we know that John is using the Word as a title for Christ? We know it because in the revelation that God gave to John, the one he later wrote down and became the book of Revelation, here's what he said when he saw the future and he saw Jesus returning to the earth to establish his kingdom. In fact, let's turn there since I haven't had you turn anywhere in your Bibles today. Uh, You know, and I should probably do that. Uh, Revelation 19, okay. Now, John is seeing the future. He's a first century guy, but he's been taken into heaven and he's seeing the future. Primarily, the, now, by the time you get to chapter 19, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. Here's what he said, verse 11. Now, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a, name writ- had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. If you're still not convinced that this is a title for the Lord Jesus Christ, then verse 14 of John 1 should put all doubts to rest. Where John said, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the Only Begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." So John opens his gospel by calling Jesus the Word. But why? Well, why didn't just call Him Jesus? Why did He call Him the Word? Because John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had some good reasons for calling Jesus the Word. Okay, reasons we'll look at next time. But reasons that are very important, all right? And uh, we need to understand. And again, guys, can I just encourage you that to go deeper in your study of God's Word? Don't be a superficial Christian, all right? Don't be someone who has been in church for years but can't. It doesn't have a handle on the most basic principles of your faith. Read Hebrews five. That's a sad thing. Uh, a child, when it's born, is a happy. It's the most happy thing for a, a, a parent in the world. And there's nothing more precious than a little infant in the crib. You know, it, no, there's nothing more precious than that. You expect them that be have to be fed and taken care of and so on. They, they're too little to take. They have to be fed and so on. If a few years passes and that child is still in a crib or a bed or something like that because they can't take care of themselves, they can't feed themselves, what was once a great blessing is now a great tragedy. We see so many Christians in the body of Christ today who have been born of the Spirit and yet have not grown. It's a tragedy. They have not grown because they're not feeding themselves. I love feeding you guys, but if you're only getting one meal a week from me, you're not going to be very strong. you got to feed yourselves. Take it upon yourself to get into the Word. And there's all kinds of resources, radio programs and online sources of, of study. Get into the Word of God in these last days. The devil is flooding this world with lies. We have to know the truth really well to be able to stand up for the true Jesus. When every other imposter in the world is standing next to him and going, I'm Jesus Christ. We can say, no, you're not. I know the true Jesus Christ. Here's what the Bible says about him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us an insatiable hunger to dig deeper, to go deeper in your word. That, Lord, you give us the grace to remember and retain what we learn, that we can share it with the lost. Father, we don't want to be carnal Christians or ignorant Christians. Lord, we want to be on fire, mature believers who can articulate the basics of our faith. No, we're not theologians. We don't want to be theologians, but we do want to be learned believers in Christ. So give us grace, Lord, to do that and to be a light to others in darkness. And we ask you to keep blessing these studies in John's gospel, Lord, for we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.